In our last lecture, we looked at bureaucratic operations and configurations. In this lecture, we turn our attention to government-private enterprise relationships. The impetus for government-private enterprise relationships lie in a desire to bring private capital and management to public service provisions. The reason for involving private capital are clear enough. The process provides new money, managerial skills, access to innovative technology, and novel approaches to service delivery. What is probably most important is that when private agents pledge their own resources, they have a strong incentive to closely monitor project management to ensure the best possible overall financial return on their investment. At the same time, if there's uncertainty over how best to manage a project, and technical issues that make it difficult to monitor the relationship between inputs and results, financial incentives help steer and keep a check on private agents' behavior. In other words, properly aligned incentives require private partners to assume appropriate shares of risk and rewards, improving the likelihood of a successful and cost-effective outcome, and thereby generating social gains. When public managers incur debt on others' behalf, and when they do not share directly the financial benefits of a successful project, they have less incentive to carefully monitor a project's performance. Simply put, getting private money to the table with proper incentive mechanisms serves to keep down operational costs. Moreover, partnerships can make new infrastructure available for public use much more quickly than through conventional procurements. This is important since the continuous challenge of persuading policymakers is the need to steer resources to capital construction and maintenance projects. Governments wishing to see large infrastructure projects fall into place must wrestle with competing demands for available resources. As a result, the decisions about whether and when to proceed and at what scale are inevitably political ones. Elaborate cost-benefit analysis can establish the economic merit of a project but they cannot resolve the political merits of one choice over another. Effectively, what we're suggesting here then is that when we look at government-private enterprise relationships in China, they operate under several kinds of premises. What we're gonna explore in today's lecture is looking at government market theory, as well as government interdependence theory, and how what we're going to see, there's a particular type of institutional framework that allows for government-private enterprise relationships to blossom in the Chinese context. So let's start discussing this idea of government market theory. China's high-performing market economy has attracted strong interest in understanding the interactions of government and private enterprises. Part of this formula of success is the importance of institutions, insulated technocracies, and bureaucratic capacities. Whether to establish new industries and, and create new products or to upgrade quality technologies and skills, China's experience has emphasized the advantages of a publicly coordinated approach to industrial innovation. Government market theory builds a view that active governments and strategic industrial policy plays a central part in China's success. We can go further and argue the importance of, of, of these kinds of institutional arrangements that make such a strategic approach uh, possible. The government market theory advances three main propositions. First, economic performance is a result of heavy investment in internationally competitive high growth industries. 
Moreover, the patenting and level of investment are different from what would have been the case if market mechanisms alone had operated. Second, the exceptional levels of investment in increasingly high-tech sectors in China is the deliberate outcome of a set of strategic industrial policies. Third, and at a deeper level of causalities, these policies were pursued with more consistency and were relatively more effective than in many other developing nations because China has a particular set of institutional arrangements. In this case, it's being led by a very strong state. Now, we can also look at government interdependence theory. Government interdependence theory differs from government market theory in two key respects. The first difference to note concerns the larger system nurtured by public policies, which institutionalizes a dynamic response from industry. The proposition is that the ability of Chinese firms and industry to more generally adapt quickly to economic change is based on a system that socializes risk and thereby coordinates changes across a broad array of organizations, both public and private. In this system, firms are, are relieved from bearing the entire burden of four major risks. These risks include raising capital, developing new products and technologies, finding new markets, and training skilled workers. A significant proportion of the cost of upgrading technology, new product development, industrial training, market expansion, are shared by or embedded in a thick network of state and foreign institutions. Beneath that system, what makes the policy so effective in China is a particular kind of state structure and a particular kind of relationship between the state and private enterprises and industry, a governed interdependence, shall we say. So government interdependence theory describes a system of central coordination based on the cooperation of government and industry. Policies for this or that industry, sector, or technology are not simply imposed by bureaucrats or politicians. They are a result of regular and extensive consultation and coordination with the private sector. Governments' developmental projects do not lose out to clientistic or sectional interests because of insulated policymaking. Put differently, businesses do not lose out to remote and bumbling bureaucrats because of institutional connectedness between the state and private enterprise. So how did China do so well in incorporating private enterprises and, and government in a sort of symbiotic sort of relationship? Well, as we discussed in our last lecture, there's a very interesting type of bureaucratic structure of coordination that China has. What helped to make active government private enterprise policies relatively effective, especially in the light of neoclassical predictions about rent-seeking and information gaps, is the fact that there are key features of the organization in China and interaction between government and businesses. There's this sort of embedded autonomy. It's an important idea for us to examine, this sort of concept of embedded autonomy. Embedded autonomy stresses bureaucratic coherence through meritocracy and personal networks as the key to a state's installation. A number of conditions are essential if a state's policy are to be consistent with developmental and growth-oriented goals. One is that the bureaucracy must be competent and committed to organizational objectives. The other is that the state's key policy-making agencies be sufficiently insulated against special interest groups and clientistic sort of pressures generally. 
there are three main features of the state's internal organization that are relevant in this regard. First is the quality and prestige of the economic bureaucrats. Second is a strong in-house capacity for information gathering. Third is the appointment of a key agency charged with the task of policy coordination. These conditions are significant insofar as they contribute to the insulation or autonomy of the bureaucracy, thereby preserving policymaking from domination by outside interests or special interests. It is really important to note that what makes public-private partnerships in China or government-private enterprise relationships so successful is the presence of high-quality bureaucrats. In the Chinese context, government service has traditionally conferred high status. Merit-based recruitment and promotion of officials, rather than political appointments, has tended to minimize political manipulation of the bureaucracy. Consequently, governments have been able to attract high, highly qualified individuals. The combination of talent and prestige has made for a highly motivated, competent and cohesive bureaucracy, which has internalized national objectives. For example, in matters of trade and business relations, bureaucratic expertise is enhanced by a tendency to appoint engineers rather than economists. Bureaucrats are thus able to communicate easily with companies and do so with greater frequency. The second related feature of the core economic ministries is their powerful capacity for marshalling and analyzing economic information in-house. For instance, key ministries in China, key uh, sort of government agencies maintain an efficient information network of their own. This has been to the point that the knowledge of product demand, quality standards, and foreign market trends has been better or similar to the private sector. A key aspect of this information gathering network has been the establishment of a reporting system. This allows the Chinese bureaucracy to keep close track of priority industries to the high growth period. In return for significant state support, these industries are required regularly to report on their export performance and other areas of business activity. The important point here is that through this monitoring system, the state has gained access to up-to-date knowledge um, in priority sectors akin to private industry. Now, the contrasting case here is where public sector um, may not have the same sort of information as the private sector. Or another contrasting case is where the public sector don't have the same quality of, of workers as the private sector. And this is usually a reality we, we see in other jurisdictions. In the Chinese context, however, we can argue that we have similar quality bureaucrats uh, who are, have similar training akin to the private sector, as well as both sectors, both public and private, have similar information that they are looking at. Effectively, what I'm suggesting is that there are two important consequences that follow from the development of an in-house information-oriented capacity. One is that it gives state agencies a formable competence in areas normally left to the private sector. The other is that it nurtures bureaucratic independence vis-a-vis -vis sectoral interests within the business community. From what we can observe thus far, it is easy to conclude that in China, there's an institutional advantage at the governmental level. In the existence of a talented, technically able and prestigious public service, which is charged with a broad institutional mission and relatively insulated from special interests, 
It has a, developed an impressive in-house capacity for acquiring and managing production-relevant information. Particularly in new or emerging industries, government-private enterprise relationships is important. To solicit the cooperation of the producers involved, the public sector absorbs most of or all of the risk, often mediating between producers and end users in the domestic market. Looking ahead, as China's global ascendancy matures into the middle of the 21st century, marking nearly 100 years of practicing corporatism, Western-based actors need to become better equipped to understand and navigate Chinese businesses, notably those who have an intimate relationship with the state. This need is especially vital considering the increasing friction among Western businesses operating in China and in the climate of ongoing trade disputes, notably looking at uh, the EU-China sort of trade disputes or the US-China trade disputes. For the most part, we continue to see Western actors misunderstanding indigenous Chinese businesses' relationship with the state. This misunderstanding can best be characterized in how Western-based actors attempt to influence Chinese domestic policymaking via Western-style interest group lobbying techniques. This approach is a curiosity from afar, since overt and open political bargaining or lobbying outside of the bureaucratic state structure is generally against the rules of success in the Chinese corporatist context. Although pluralistic competitive lobbying has proved fruitful on occasion, it is widely perceived as an oddity in China, and Chinese authorities seldom concede vital elements of the policy-making process to private groups. Put differently, Chinese associations generally try to influence policy decision-making through mutual harmonious agreement rather than open opposition and confrontation. Thus, if we were to try to understand uh, from afar how China's public-private partnerships operate, how, how China's state and, and private enterprise relationships operate, it is, it is prudent that Western actors understand the inner workings and operations of the Chinese corporate state and its complex relationship with businesses. It allows these actors to better influence the state and businesses, ironically, so long as the goals sought are congruent with the overall national interests. This concludes our conversation on government-private enterprise relationships. In our next lecture, we will turn our attention to government-NGO relationships. While they share many similar characteristics insofar there is a corporate sort of element in play, we would also observe some variations in the relationship between government and NGOs relative to government-private enterprise relationships.